You are listening to Coffee with Curtis and I'm Robert Curtis. Welcome to the show. Coffee with Curtis is a weekly podcast where you will be able to tune into my conversations over coffee with business leaders sharing their journey and experiences to give you insights to impact your own business. So grab a coffee and enjoy the show. Joining me on today's episode of Coffee with Curtis is Dan Cohen, Principal of Full Court Press Communications. Dan is a veteran PR strategist. He is a specialist in helping their, his clients reach their target audience for over three decades. And he actually looks quite young, so I'm intrigued to know how old he is. Um, he started doing this when he was four, but he has worked for Democratic candidates from mayor all the way to Congress, and is going to share with us some amazing insights into his value and strategy behind how best to be an effective communicator, both personally or as brands. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. And it's a joy to be here. And I mean that. Uh, and it's a joy to be with you, who I actually consider to be a phenomenal communicator. I think you were born that way. So it's, I'm excited for the conversation. Amazing, thank you, Dan. I'll take that one and uh, put it put it put it up as a, as a notch. So uh, um, let's kick off. And I love starting my podcast with my two favorite questions. And obviously, this is coffee with Curtis. So um, first of all, do, if you do like coffee, how do you take your coffee? Well, for those of your listeners that are listening in America, I love uh, Pete's Coffee has a blend called Major Dickinson, and there's no better mass market coffee in the world. So if you're in the continental United States, get yourself some of that. I'll say, as you know, but maybe your listeners don't know, uh, four years ago, my family and I moved from the Bay Area to Israel. And one of the accommodations that I had to make was I now work evenings, which is daytime California time. So one of the treats I bought myself was an an espresso machine uh, in order to be able to work these nocturnal hours. So my new favorite coffee is just a strong, long pull on the espresso machine. And uh, that gives me the rocket fuel I need to get through the day and night. I love that. I love that. I also worked uh, basically American hours for about seven years. And uh, it's it's difficult. It's really difficult. But your body obviously gets used to to the time shift and uh, Nespresso and uh, strong espressos were definitely part of the daily diet. So I hear you. Yeah. So, and uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. This is all about you, Dan. Share more. Oh, no. All I was going to say is also um, every time I take a sip of coffee, I'm, I get a chance to think about being back in the office with my team. Um, we used to sit around and, you know, uh, joke in the morning and sort of get ourselves ready for the day. And um, that coffee is a ritual to sort of bring a team together uh, is, a, is a hugely important tool. So uh, I, I, I miss that. So when I think about coffee, it's not just the taste and it's not just the drink. It's also all the experiences that go around it. It's so true. That really resonates with me because obviously I have my uh, my crazy coffee campaign, which is, you know, the coffee is the conduit to the networking and to the communication and uh, um, really, really resonates with me. Now, Dan, you presumably did not grow up in, um, you know, kindergarten thinking, I've just got to get out of here to become a communication strategist. Uh, what did you want to be when you were a little kid? So I wanted to play second base for the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, that was definitely going to happen. That was like a no-brainer. Um, and I wanted to be the first Jewish president. And if my mom and my two grandmothers had anything to say about it, I would have been 
uh, the first Jewish president. Instead, I became a political hack and got other people elected. And I became a PR marketing guy for big brands like Cheerios and Wheaties and Betty Crocker. And then morphed all of that into helping organizations, you know, communicate with the audiences that they need to reach. So I guess in a way I kind of ended up doing that, but I just never got to the White House. That's interesting. How young were you when you wanted to be president? Did you live in a particularly political household? So, you know, as a kid um, to suddenly think, yeah, I want to be the first Jewish president. There must have been an environment around you that enabled those views. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a house where service was really important. Um, my mother was a professional in the Jewish community, so she ran Jewish organizations. And so politics wasn't a big part of our life, but service to others was. So for me, that's what, you know, that's what stayed with me and really resonated. And the idea that you could get through life without serving others professionally was really not even, you know, we didn't even think that way. Um, so my dad was a, a small um, had a private small accounting firm and a lot of his clients sort of were trying to do something better for the world. And my mom worked to, in, in the service world. So for me, I, I guess in a lot of ways, I was always sort of pointed in this direction. It was really just a question of what was the destination. I love that. So that takes us through to actually just, if you want to, just give us a, a, a sort of round robin of your career. So starting out, it sounds like you were, you know, working on different political campaigns as that political hack, as you call, you, call yourself. Just take us on the yeah. Dan Cohen career journey. Okay, well, I'll try to do speed round. Um, we're approximately the same age, although I think I'm maybe a little bit older. You may remember that there was a television show in the 1980s called Family Ties. And on it um, was uh, Michael J. Fox, who played Alex P. Keaton, who grew up in a house full of hippies, but was a, wanted to be a business Ronald Reagan Republican. And I sort of uh, riffed a lot off of that. So I went to an undergraduate experience at a place called Babson College. Um, which is an amazing place to go to school, but it's uh, you get like an entrepreneurial education and a business education. And at the same time, I had a push pull with um, wanting to serve and wanting to be in politics. So um, I went there, I had a great education, but I took a semester off and worked in Washington, D.C. for a senator. And I did television production for that senator, helping him create programming to send back home to his home state. After college, um, it was an economy similar to right now where there were literally no jobs. Um, and so instead of trying to get a job at a company, I ran around the country for a couple of years working on political campaigns, working for cause related groups, managed to make my way to the Pacific Northwest where I worked for a public relations firm that's kind of very similar to what I'm doing now. Small firm, maybe about 10 or 12 people worked in the region, learned a lot about uh, how to get clients, how to serve clients, how to keep clients and how to upsell clients. Um, from there, my boss was recruited to go to General Mills, the big cereal company. So I followed him to Minneapolis. Um, I had already been accepted to law school. So my deal was I'll come to Minneapolis if you pay for law school. Uh, so General Mills was kind enough to help pay for law school. And uh, I worked and uh, I worked at General Mills and I went to law school and did that for a few years, graduated. And then um, in the uh, late 1990s, as you remember, the Bay Area was on fire. It was sort of the first technology boom. So my boss was again recruited to go out to the Bay Area. I followed him and did two of those dot coms and then said, okay, this technology thing isn't for me, but this communications thing really is. So um, he stayed in technology. I, I decided to open a little tiny little PR shop with me and my laptop and a dog. And that was us, right? And um, I've been doing it ever since. We're about to celebrate our 20th year. 
Wow, congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you, you. You dropped in there that you trained as a lawyer or you finished law school? I did. did Where did that go in the uh, trajectory? Um, I don't know what you remember about your late 20s or anybody in the audience who's either been through their late 20s or who's about to go through their late 20s. For me, it was a time of real tension, Um, mostly because I had proven myself in the workforce as a very effective tactician. If you wanted to get something done, I was your guy. And that had been my calling card in communications, whether it was on political work, um, fundraising and development work, or even in helping a giant company like General Mills. I just got things done. What I was frustrated by was the idea that I was really struggling to make that leap to become a strategist. How did I learn to take a step back out of the, the moment and really think more about looking at the big picture? And my mentor and friend at the time suggested law school as a way to do that. Also to broaden my career prospects after it. Um, Again, first Jewish president. Um, But to also just be able to take a step back and look at a problem more holistically. And it really did that for me. So um, working all day at General Mills and going to school all night and studying all weekend, I don't really remember the mid-1990s. But what I do remember is that I was really able to make this quantum huge leap from being a tactician to a strategist. And I really think it set the tone for what's followed since, which is being in technology and and then having this company for 20 years, because that's the value I bring. We have a staff full of brilliant tacticians. They're amazing. And my goal with every single one of our staff members is to help them through whatever time that they're with us, make that same transition to become a strategist. Because as you know, with your business, people aren't hiring you to make phone calls. People are hiring you to think about who do we call? What do we say when we get them on the phone? How do we close them? How do we keep them? And that's a huge leap. And I think it's very under undervalued. Um, but I think if someone is able to make that leap, I think it really sets them up for the second or third act of their career. And I was lucky enough to be able to do it through law school. That's so interesting. Basically, what you're saying is obviously a lot of us can become good practitioners um, of what we do. Um, and, and the implementation behind it, and like you say, the tactician element of it, but perhaps the, the jump to being the strategist is where you're able to be entrepreneurial, it's where you're able to grow yeah. things, it's, it's how you can mentor and build others. Yeah. I mean, think about your profession and think about the great salespeople that you've had a chance to work with in your sales career, right? How many of them are great salespeople but can't teach people how to sell? Or great salespeople but can't think about what does my sale approach have to do with the larger strategy of the company and where we're trying to position them, right? So am I selling to the right audience or am I just selling to the people who I know I can get to say yes? So I think that it it applies kind of in in every field. Just making that leap to strategist is I think what separates, um, actually separates is a bad word. What I would say is it, for me, it has been a path to help finding more joy in my work. Because doing the same thing over and again can get very repetitious and, and isn't very fun. But playing chess instead of playing checkers is a lot of fun. Do, do, do you find, though, that you have a, a full court press methodology that you approach projects with? Because I think that's the thing that I found in, in our business, that um, trying to define a methodology that isn't cookie cutter, and obviously it needs to be flexible, but 
having a, a roadmap that we know works and we can adjust as we find clients in, uh, that require different things. Is that something that applies within your world? Yeah, I, I think that like any professional services firm, there's a life cycle to every client, right? There's the discovery phase. Um, ideally, there's a strategic planning phase. And then there's a strategic implementation phase. Um, we have our own tricks and tips and language that we use, but it, essentially we are a professional services firm. We go in, we find out what's going on. We take a look at the field. We figure out what's your unique opportunity to, to break through, and then we help you do it. Um, and that's true if you're a lawyer, an accountant, um, a management consultant, there are a lot of the same principles. I think our secret sauce, if you will, um, and what we have found to be a competitive advantage is really one focus, just relentless focus, and then relentless execution. So too many people in my field that come out of politics and public relations and marketing are professional BSers. And I will put myself in that category. What I will say is that many of, many of them, however, are not very good implementers. And so what I've been able to do, and this is not me, this is me being lucky enough to find um, staff and leaders and um, partners in the business who are relentless executors. So I'll be as creative as you need me to be. I think the joke at FCP is, you know, you put coins in me and creative ideas come out, <laughs> but I've got this amazing team behind me to implement. And I think that's exactly that level of strategy and tactics that if you can get the two pieces together and really get them aligned and then deliver it, you can do anything. So your vertical of communications um, and strategy around communications, I actually think is one of the only um, sort of elements to all business, all, all interactions, all relationships, which ultimately is makes it the, one of the only horizontals. It goes into everything. If you're communicating yeah. right as a politician, if you're communicating right as a salesman, if you're communicating right as a parent, as a spouse, as a son, daughter, that communication is ultimately the thing that drives every single interaction that we have. And obviously communication is a huge bucket. It could be the billboard through to the phone call, through to the social media, whatever it might be. How, how do you actually, how have you found your niche and how do you, how do you see communications um, developing from where we are at the moment as well? Two part question. Sure. Um, okay, so I'm not a sociologist, right? But a lot of this, I developed just by being human, as you talked about, right? Nothing trains you to be a communicator more than, um, I don't know, in college, I was a fundraiser. I sat in a basement and raised money for the Sierra Club or whatever. You know, learning how to listen, not just talk, um, I think is a key element to that. And I think that nothing changes over time. You're absolutely right. Listening and engaging and communicating is essential, whether you're selling car insurance, um, or whether you're selling, I don't know, stuff on the internet. Like it's still the ability to take in information, respond to it, and then put it back out. As a company, what I would say is that we started following the principle that our job was to get our clients into the media or keep them out of it, right? That's what PR firms did, right? In the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, social media and the internet have completely exploded that and it just doesn't apply anymore. So one of our fundamental principles is to help our clients figure out who they need to engage, who is that target audience, and then to do whatever it takes 
to engage that target audience, whether it's messaging, whether it's tools, in order to get them to do what you want them to do, whether it's sign a petition, give you money, buy your product or something, something else. So I think that that's the fundamental principle of what's changed in our business. Our business used to be, as I said, solely focused on earned media. That's when somebody writes a story or does a story about you. Mm -hmm. And now we're much more focused on, we don't care what the tools are. As long as we get you in front of the audience you wanna reach, that's great. We worked for the David and Lucille Packard Foundation for a long time. Yeah, it's the folks behind HP. And their family is incredibly philanthropic and we worked with them on a lot of issues. One of the issues we didn't work with them on was women's reproductive rights. But one of the things they used to talk about in that work is um, that their most important communications vehicle for their third world work on women's reproductive rights was a canoe, right? So you and I may think LinkedIn is an important channel or Facebook is an important channel, but for them, it was a canoe which took the health educator from one small island to another through the South Pacific, right? And I think that was a huge mind blower for me as a reminder that whatever it takes to get our message in front of the customer or in front of the key audience, you got to be willing to be agnostic on how you do it. So if it's an email, if it's live LinkedIn, if it's podcasting, um, or even if it's showing up at their house and knocking on their door, that's what it takes now to be able to break through and engage your customer. Wow, what an answer. I think the, 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 the interesting part of what you, you, you say, though, is that um, we're living in a world now well, certainly within the Western world, obviously you've given a, a you know an, an incredible example there of the the, the canoe health yeah. worker. But we're living in the Western world largely, and, and pretty much globally anyway, yeah. uh, in a in a world that is totally, in some ways, completely over communicating. Yeah. Uh, and we all do it. I do it. We all do it. And we're all putting ourselves out there in different ways and doing it better or worse than others. Um, but in a world where there is too much communication, potentially, that's a question, mm -hmm. um, it's in, almost impossible to be really heard. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sort of almost like a reverse psychology. What I would say is um, one of my business mentors um, taught me this early on. As I was thinking about a business like Full Court Press that was focused on social change, right? A lot of our clients are trying to make the world a better place through public policy or products or employee campaigns. What she taught me, and I thought that it was a mind blower at the time, is that the general public is not a target audience, right? So it's almost counterintuitive, but in order to reach our audiences, what we need to do is actually shrink that audience down as much as possible. And only then can we surround them with content and breakthrough, right? It's only at the time where we shrink it down to a manageable number of people that we can find them on social media platforms. We can find them in their mailbox. We can find them at conferences. We can find them on webinars. All of a sudden, this huge, loud, noisy world becomes a lot easier to manage once you bring that audience down, right? So think about the difference between homeowners and realtors. And then what about realtors who work for themselves or are smaller audiences? And then what about maybe female or male realtors who work on their own in small businesses? All of a sudden, as you bring these down, you can really break through. And so what we would encourage for most of our clients who aren't trying to break through to the global audience is to think about who that target audience is, where are they, and how can you surround them with all the communication tools you need? Again, whether it's email or whether it's a canoe. 
So it's, it just comes back to basic clever targeting. If, you're, if you've got the right message and you're matching it to the right people, the fact that millions of other people may or may not see that is almost irrelevant. Your message has to hit home with your target. A million percent. I think we tend to overthink and overanalyze the work that we do. Um, but as communications evolves, so much uh, technologically may change, but the principles behind it are the same. You know, are you telling powerful stories? Are you tapping into values that are shared with your key audience? Are you delivering them what they need at the moment that they need it so that they give you whatever it is you want, their money, their time, their attention? Um, those principles have been the same for 200 years. I find that in communication, certainly with some of the things that we're doing within, within our company, the more personal they are by the people putting them out, the impact seems to be disproportionately higher. I actually just recently finished an incredible series on Netflix called The Race for the White House. And it mm -hmm. talks about different uh, White House races over the last sort of 200 years, brilliant historic history show. And mm -hmm. um, one of the episodes was on the Clinton-Bush um, uh, White House race. And the minute that Clinton and, uh, sorry, Bill and Hillary Clinton were on that sofa talking about the story and there was these lamp that blew and it became so personal and real. It almost changed the whole dynamic. The more personal things get, even in you know my posts on LinkedIn, the views or the likes or the impact way higher. Why does that resonate more? I think people crave authenticity. This is what I think. Um, and think about yourself. I mean, you're a sales genius and I'll give you the G word, right? What works when you think about selling a product, right? It's I've invested enough of my time in you to understand what it's going to take in order for this product to help you, right? It's that sense of intimacy that we crave as human beings. Um, and it's a little bit phony when it's delivered through this platform, but it's what engages people. And I would say it's as much of authenticity as it is the storytelling, right? When we're done this call, you're not going to remember half of what I said, but you're going to remember the story of a health worker paddling around in a canoe delivering health messaging to women in the South Pacific, right? Messaging that includes powerful stories is what's going to stay and resonate with people because that's how we're wired. So true. Well, wow. I've really got this canoe story embedded now firmly in my. Well, it wasn't my, my plan, but. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't my plan, and it's not my story, but it is, it, it is powerful as a way to remind ourselves whatever it takes to get in front of the consumer. And now that's even harder, right? Now, I mean, for the folks in, who are listening who are in the business sector, you know, maybe you used to be able to count on going to Las Vegas every winter to go to CES and to see the head of digital at Samsung and to see the head of digital at, at Rico and all these other companies, right? How can you create that level of intimacy now? Well, one is through storytelling and B, as you said, is by sharing these like personal anecdotes as a way to break through all the noise that's going out there. What, what I find interesting is though, that you are focusing on a niche and around particularly social causes, the trend that we're seeing in the business world is that you can't be an effective business without having also a social purpose behind you. We're mm -hmm. seeing that become a huge trend. And so in, in many ways, and I think it's uh, uh, Baratunda Thurston who says, how to citizen. 
and companies need to learn how to citizen sure. and they need to have these 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 social purposes behind them i'm not sure where i stand completely on them because ultimately i still want the best product produced by the best company and whether they're doing other things i'm not sure whether that buys into my personal view of whether i buy something but sure. it is important i know to, to to people around the world is every company now a social cause wow let me um let me reflect back just a couple things that are flying through my head but i think that that's a great question um number one um we cannot talk about social causes without at least being frank about their role in marketing. Okay. So if you are going down a supermarket aisle and you have a choice between two cereals, one cereal, you know, nothing about the company, the other cereal, you know, they support a cause that you believe in. Well, of course, what cereal are you going to pick? You're going to pick the cereal that where there's some level of affinity, some kind of connection. And what I would say is there's a through line to what you were talking about and what's engaging people with your posts, right? It's something that's personal, something that's engaging. And what I would say is, yeah, I think all companies have to be social in some way. I think they have to reflect um, um, values as corporate citizens, values that will engage their customers um, and values that talk about the lasting impact of their product. Interesting. So, so you're, so whether it's contrived or not, you don't think that matters. It's just that whether they have that purpose behind them that is communicated in the right way is going to help their bottom line. Yeah. I mean, I hate to, I, I hate to sort of go so long as to say it can be false, but what I would say <laughs> is that there should be some natural affinity early on in my career, early on in, in full court press, we had a chance to work for a very large auto insurance company that was based in California and was slowly trying to make their way across the US. And we were helping them roll out in all these states. Before we got there, they would support things like the Rose Bowl Parade, or they would support things like um, scholarships to colleges, all of which made sense. One of the things when we got there is we said, well, why don't we think about marrying the philanthropy from the company with the marketing? So over the course of our time with that company, we took them from literally cradle to senior citizens with their philanthropy. So we ran child safety seat programs with our philanthropy, where we gave away car seats to people who needed them in communities all over the country. We worked with public broadcasting to create a 60-minute program that was basically how to take the keys away from grandpa right? That was how to have a conversation with seniors about safe driving. And then we had all sorts of campaigns in between that were about distracted driving and no cell phone driving and how to teach your teen how to drive safely. All of a sudden, all the corporate philanthropy fed right back into making the roads safer, making the roads safer for you, our customers, having an awareness of what's going to make all of us safe on the roads. And then I, you know, ideally, as I'm writing my premium check, which I do as a grudge, not because I want to, because I have to, um, I could feel a little better about that company. So aligning the philanthropic purpose of the company with the goal of the product is, I think, ideal. If you can put that together, that's, that's fantastic. Great example. Great example. Yeah. Now, segueing into politics, you are a self-confessed political hack. That's how mm -hmm. we started this podcast. And obviously- uh, we are in a, a political year. Um, I think we've been in political years for a long time. Um, yeah. politi politicians generally get a bad rap 
globally for not communicating truthfully or whether or perhaps I rephrase it not answering the question that they're being asked in a in a way that perhaps you and I just would on the street and for good or bad you've seen leaders come forward who are perceived as being more like the guy on the street or I'm giving a direct answer even if maybe they're not it feels more authentic when it's when when someone's not skirting round. And there's so many examples of this. We could go on all day. Yeah. Why well, politicians are sometimes seen as great communicators, but actually, in, in, this may be my own personal view. But uh, what else have we got? They are bad at communicating the real truth. Thoughts. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to go back, I think, to something we were talking about earlier, which is a relentless focus on your target audience. One of the fundamental things I think that has changed in American politics, and I can't speak for British politics, but let's just assume, and certainly in Israeli politics, um, our elected leaders are only interested in talking to their base, whether it's on the left or whether it's on the right. So if you think about what we said earlier about answering the question with your target audience in mind, too often they are speaking right to that target audience and delivering that message. So you could argue they're doing amazing. They're doing amazing because what they're delivering is a direct message targeted at their 40% or the other 40% of the population. And they're hammering that message home and they're doing it consistently. And all you need to do is do what I do, which is Sadly, I watch a lot of Twitter go by. Um, you look at left Twitter, you look at right Twitter, and they're just talking to themselves. So I think that um, they're actually extraordinary at communicating because very quickly this universe can pick up on exactly how to spin what's happened and then spin it directly to that world. I think where it's left us is in a very divided space where it's hard to leap from one pool to the other or even um, uh, lend value to the other pool. Um, and I think that's that's the bigger struggle. I think if Coke and Pepsi don't have that kind of a fight, or uh, to cause Skoda and Audi don't don't fight like that, um, uh, but I think in the political world, I think a, a big part of it is keeping that base of 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 whichever side you're on frothy, and that's the work that they're doing. And I think that they're brilliant at it. Actually, I think what'll me, be interesting. I'm sorry. To to me though, that as a salesperson. I find that odd in that my base is my base. They're always going to buy from me. And yeah, I've got to nurture them, but they're always going to buy from me. The bit I want to concentrate on is the people who haven't bought me yet. And the people that have been successful in politics, you know, I think in England of Tony Blair, for example, or I Mm -hmm. think in the US of Bill Clinton, of Ronald Reagan um, in his first election, these people were able to speak to the people that aren't their base in order to win and win big. Um, yep. That's where I think the, the, the win is in, in terms of communication. What I would say is I, I may look at it a little differently. And I think that that's part of the interesting part of this conversation. I think that um, what I respect about you coming out of the business community is that the market share can go all the way to 100, right? Uh, in the political world, you really just need 50% plus one. <laughs> so if you're waking up in the morning and you've got 40% on one side and 40% on the other, all you really need is that one little incremental push. So um, it's that old joke about Microsoft and, and Apple. Um, a million years ago when Bill Gates was talking about uh, Steve Jobs, he's like, I'm going to let him keep his 3%. 
I'll just focus over here on the 97%. That's fine. No problem, right? Uh, so I think that's the fundamental difference between business and, and politics is politics really is you just got to get over the finish line, whereas business is there's no limit if you're smart and strategic to the size of the audience or the adoption of the audience. I mean, look at a company like Salesforce going from zero to everything in just a short period of time. I love that answer, Dan. Really uh, plays out that, thank God, I'm more of a salesman than a politician, maybe. But um, the, the, the world has changed in terms of all communication. And we see that within businesses. We see that in um, internal communication, um, largely because we've had a big behavioral change in the way that we now engage, and particularly, obviously, online. Engagement is such a big buzzword. Um, you know, in the past, CEOs were broadcast CEOs. They would, you know, issue the memo from the very top floor. It would go to everybody else in the company, and no one could say a word, and there'd be no feedback, yeah. no no engagement. Um, but it comes with its weaknesses and, and pitfalls as well. Um, what are you seeing with clients and the work that you do around enabling engagement leaders, um, but also controlling that? Uh, well, I think the fundamental thing we need to realize is that everybody's walking around with a supercomputer in their pocket, right? They can make movies. They can record audio. They can take pictures. Um, and especially within a workforce, it creates a huge opportunity and also a huge challenge. Um, a friend of mine was involved at, my, at uh, Facebook in launching their workplace product, which I think is still a work in progress. One of the things he said to me is that 75% of workers are remote workers. They don't work at the headquarters, right? So I think that a smart CEO or a smart business leader recognizes the value of this distributed workforce as a communicator and also as an information gatherer, right? So if you think about... Um, one of the things we, we talk a lot with our clients about are the 10,000 communications that are going to happen in between every time you get interviewed by a reporter. And it's the same with your frontline workers and it's the same with your management. They're going to have so many communications opportunities that really will help shape people's perception of your company with the outside world before anybody reads a story in the Wall Street Journal. So part of it is getting alignment and it's not a, a top-down thing. It's really an engagement of okay, for all of our mid-level managers, for all of our sales managers and our sales teams, how are we positioning ourselves to the world? Not only what are we saying, but are we listening? Are we taking that feedback? Are we valuing it? Are we showing our customers and potential customers that they mean something to us? Um, and having that ethos all, you know, from the top down. The, the work that you do within crisis management and crisis mm -hmm. communications, um, is becoming more and more relevant because of that over-communication of every move that a company makes that you just spoke about can be imparted to potential customers, to employees. When it comes to, to crisis and, and how to communicate, what's your top tip for companies that are facing this? Because these things can happen very quickly. It can be an event in the company that gets communicated out on a social media channel and all of a sudden, you know, you're in a, a pretty bad situation. This happened in the UK recently with a retail provider called Boohoo. Um, mm -hmm. And it's found that they were using UK sweatshops, paying people, you know, a couple of pounds to produce these, uh, these garments uh, per hour. And, and it was crisis mode within minutes when that story broke that they didn't know about. 
what's what's full court press's top tip for crisis communications all right so have you ever had that dream where in your exam chair and you've walked in and all of a sudden you look down at a piece of paper and you're sitting for an exam and you have no idea what the topic is. And this is one of the most common dreams in the world is basically not being prepared for whatever situation you're in. What I would say is my top tip is to actually be prepared in advance as part of your CEO or C-level leadership work. Um, understanding your vulnerabilities and how you want to respond when that happens is critically important for two reasons. One is it makes you a fearless communicator because then there's nothing the world can throw at you that you're not ready for, or at least in some way. And two, you know well in advance your vulnerabilities so that you can go out and fix them. You know, if Blue Who really knew that they were employing sweatshop workers, maybe they could have done something in advance. Maybe somebody could have raised awareness. It took Nike a series of huge exposés in order to reshape their labor force, but it worked. But imagine if a guy like you or me or a woman like you or, or me were at Nike in their VP of marketing role and they had done a sort of vulnerability analysis and the sweatshops was part of it. Perhaps she or he could have walked into um, Phil Knight's office and said, dude, we got to do something about the sneakers and where we're making them. And I recognize that maybe is my social change lens, mm -hmm. but being prepared in advance to answer the question you hope doesn't get asked was the most, absolutely the most important thing I learned in law school. If you're ready in advance to ask, answer the question that you pray doesn't get asked, my guess is it's true in sales too, right? Because you're smiling. Um, when you're ready to answer that question, you're a fearless communicator. There's nothing they can throw at you. And I think the effective politicians, we were talking about politicians earlier, they're all ready for this. They have already done the opposition research on themselves before they've decided to run for office. So they know, okay, well, that time that I did this thing, what's my answer going to be? And once you do that, everything else is easy. So my top tip uh, to any corporate communicator or corporate CEO would be to, to go sit down on a piece of paper or a napkin and write down all the stuff you're scared of. <laughs> and write down all the things that could happen um, and then go from there. That is my top tip. As far as reaction and all that stuff, I, I'm happy to go through some tips. But the number one tip is to actually take a step back and prepare before any of that happens. I absolutely love that advice. And, uh, you know, whether somebody's got a napkin or a very long sheet of paper, I guess, tells us more about them, unless the thing on the napkin is a real biggie. <laughs> I think the journey, the journey of a thousand miles starts with a, a short step. So as, <laughs> as long as somebody's willing to engage in that level of reflection, I think it, it can pay huge business dividends too. Excuse me. <clears throat> you know, understanding that level of, understanding where you're vulnerable as a business um, can only make you a better business. So Dan, we're coming to the end of our time together. And my final question for you actually is something around um, just who are your communication I wouldn't say idols, but who, who do you look into the, the world, uh, the scene of the world today? We were speaking before about uh, the Pope, for example. Who do you look at in the sort of global out there world who is communicating effectively in a Dan Cohen lens? Tough question, I know. We, we, we could maybe start with the Pope who we were speaking about before we came on. 
Um, no, I'll tell you who I think is actually proven to be an effective communicator. And, and again, this is a U.S. lens, so I apologize mm-hmm. to our, uh, our, our, our foreign listeners. Um, if you look at Dr. Fauci, um, who has been very active in trying to help shape the U.S. response to COVID, I think one of the things that has been clear, and it actually, he's been attacked from both sides, left and right. Um, one of the things I think is he has been very clear and straightforward in his communications. He's delivered his messages very similarly, regardless of the platform. I've seen him in tweets. I've seen him in interviews. I've seen him on television. I've heard him on podcasts. And he's saying the same thing. So he knows before he's gone out there what it is that he's trying to communicate. And what I admire about him partly is his ability to do that. But in line with the conversation we just had about doing your homework, he's clearly a communicator who's done his homework. And that comes from 40 years as a health educator, a public health expert, but it also comes from the the power and the clarity that comes with knowing what you want to say before you're asked your opinion. And I think that a lot of times when we uh, work with our clients as communicators, having them take a deep breath and think about in advance, what is it you're trying to communicate? Who are you trying to communicate it to? What do they need to hear in order for them to do what you want them to do? Just that minuscule amount of preparation can make you a much more effective communicator. So that's what I would learn um, from Dr. Fauci. I think Dr. Fauci is a really interesting example, actually. And he's probably somebody who never expected to be probably at the end of his career, to some extent, 40 years in this, in this uh, sector, being such a global face of healthcare communication. Um, So so he's probably the most, uh, I mean, I don't know his background fully, but presumably the most untrained person to suddenly be in a global limelight. I mean, he's the household name. Most people who are following Corona know Dr. Fauci. And there's something sort of authentic and cute about him that he's sort of like the uncle in the family that you like and trust. And uh, um, there's, there's, there's that going for him as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think he's authentic. I mean, we talked earlier about how important it is to be authentic and to tell personal stories. And every time he interviews, he talks about some experience in his life. So I would just reflect back to something you said at the start of the interview about how your most popular posts, your most engaging posts are ones where you're talking about something personal. And I think we can learn the same from Fauci, which is when you're sharing something personal about your experience or something you've seen or something you've learned. And it's what politicians do, right? Politicians will say, well, when I was in a factory in this town and this, this individual talked to me about how difficult it was for him to pack up his machine and ship it to another country and then get flown to that other country and train a worker on that machine and then fly home and not have a job. You know, but, you know those, those stories are what stays with people. And they're also really authentic. And I think that's what Fauci does. And I think that's what you described you're doing on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, look, Dan, this has been, as ever, an incredible um, time with you, hearing the insights and value and experiences from your career. So we are truly grateful for your time. I hope the listeners enjoy this. Dan, Cohen, thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Just before you go, I'd really appreciate it if you hit the subscribe button so you can get weekly updates on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed your coffee.